1937, uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote, When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And at the time that he wrote, he was referring to the atheists of, the, of his day who were willing to believe all manner of nonsense but couldn't bring themselves to believe in God. In some ways, what Chesterton said could equally apply to the ancient world of the pagans. They didn't believe in the one true God, so instead they believed in all manner of gods. For them, there was a God for everything. And the gods were fickle and capricious. There was no certainty as to how they might behave. No assurance that their moods wouldn't change on a whim. So whenever something went wrong, it was assumed that a particular god needed to be appeased. So that favour would be granted and misfortune averted. It was an awful way to live, because you could never be sure what mood the gods were in, and therefore what horrible things were coming your way. And when they did come, you could never be sure that appeasing one deity wasn't upsetting another. And this is what Paul comes across when he arrives in Athens. And as verse 16 says, it distressed Paul to see so many idols. The problem with the pagan Athenians is not that they believe so little, but that they believe so much. The good thing about them, however, is that they were willing to listen to Paul and discuss religious and philosophical views. And two groups of philosophers in particular were willing to give Paul a hearing, even though some described him in verse 18 as a babbler and an advocate for foreign gods. Now the Epicureans believed that the supreme good in life is pleasure or happiness, and it was achieved not by seeking physical pleasure, but by avoiding, avoiding pain and fear. Moderation in all things seemed to be their motto. They didn't deny the existence of the gods, but thought them to be so remote that they weren't interested in human affairs, and so we need not fear them. As for life after death, they considered that to be a nonsense. No eternal life, no punishment, no reward. This is all there is. And as for the Stoics, their general thrust was to obtain happiness by discovering and then living according to the laws of nature. They believed in an impersonal deity and different, uh, sorry, inherent in all matter, which guides the universe with a kindly providence. And all that befalls human beings is intended for their education. Thus choose to be happy with what you have. If you have innate strength of character, moral reserve, a sense of kinship with all humanity, then this is the philosophy for you. And so with the Epicureans and the Stoics as his audience, Paul was taken and brought to a meeting of the Areopagus. He wasn't exactly arrested, but nor was it an entirely polite invitation. As for the Areopagus, that's a hill on the northwest side of the Acropolis in Athens. And it's also the name given to the council whose meetings were once held there. Now it is possible that Paul was brought to the top of the hill to address the Athenians, but it's more likely that he was simply brought before the council of philosophers. As Luke says in verse 19, so that they might know what the new teaching is that Paul is presenting. For he was bringing strange ideas to their ears 
and they wanted to know more of what he meant. Now you would reckon at this point Paul's got the perfect opportunity to slam these pagans for their idolatry. After all, idolatry hadn't released them from fear. It had bound them up in an endless cycle of retribution and appeasement. So anxious were the Athenians to cover all their bases when it came to appeasing the gods that they even had, as we read in verse 23, an altar with the inscription to an unknown god. Now we know that Paul was distressed by what he saw and that's not surprising. After all, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. And when it comes to the question of idolatry, becoming a Christian didn't change any of his, any of his views about pagan worship. So what does Paul do when given the opportunity? Well, he uses the inscription to an unknown God not to slam the Athenians, but as a point of contact. These are not atheists, they're polytheists, and therefore very religious. They're like many today who might describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And it's not simply that they were wrong about whom they worship. It is, as Paul says in verse 23, that they're ignorant. Ignorant of the one true but unknown God. They just haven't heard anything about him. So Paul goes on from verse 24 to tell them. And I want you to notice that Paul, well, he's not quoting the Bible or the Old Testament like he would with a Jewish audience. He's not talking about Jesus coming as the Messiah and King. He'll get to Jesus, but he doesn't start his apologetic with repent and believe the gospel. He actually starts with the notion that if there is a creation, then there must be a creator. As Paul says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And such a God is not going to confine himself to live in a temple made with human hands. Such a God doesn't need us. He can manage his own accommodation. And he doesn't need to be lauded or appeased by us to massage his self-esteem. As Paul says in verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. On the contrary, it is we who need God, for he himself gives life and breath and everything else. And though the Athenians believed themselves to have sprung from native soil and were thus of superior nationality, Paul makes it very clear in verse 26 that it is God who has made all nations from one man. So no room here for racism or pride. And if nations have inhabited the whole earth and had their place in history, it is God who has set both their boundaries and their times. Though God utterly transcends his creation, he is not disinterested in time and place and history. On the contrary, as Paul says in verse 27, he wants all to seek him and to find him, though he's not far from any one of them. This is not the distant and disinterested God of the Epicureans and the Stoics. This is the God who gives life to his creation and the breath of life to all of humanity. As even their own philosophers and poets attest, 
Have a look at verse 28. It is the Greek poet who says of God, In him we move and have our being, for we are his offspring. Now at this point I want you to notice that Paul, well he still hasn't spoken about Jesus. There's no mention of the Trinity and so far, no mention of sin. All that Paul has established is that God couldn't be like they think he is. God's not fickle or weak, he's not needy, he's not distant, and he's not like them. On the contrary, if we're his offspring, created in his image and his likeness, then as Paul says in verse 29, why should we think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill? Recreating God in our own image and likeness it really is a dumb thing to do. And yet, we do it all the time. We may not manufacture images of silver or stone, but in our heads we manufacture a version of God that looks and thinks and behaves remarkably like ourselves. What an extraordinary coincidence. And then we can convince ourselves that God's greatest desire is our happiness. Now that is utter delusion and it's a self-serving arrogance. And that's what idolatry is. It's imaging God, not as the creator under whose lordship we live, but as the created who lives and moves to justify our every desire. And that to me sounds suspiciously like a recipe for pride and malice and envy. Now that's not just silly, that's sin. In verse 30, however, Paul is kind enough to describe Athenian idolatry as ignorance. But he doesn't shy away from the understanding that their actions were sinful. As Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And then in verse 31, he gives them a reason. It's because God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Well, I wonder who that could be. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So there it is. The resurrection is not just the point on which our faith stands or falls. The resurrection is an absolute game changer because it has implications for all of humanity at all times, everywhere and forever. And the Athenian philosophers seem to understand that well. For in verse 32, the response of many is to sneer. Now, I don't think sneering at a claimed resurrection is unusual. After all, as far as I know, there's only ever been one confirmed resurrection from death to eternal life. And that's Jesus. Nothing prior to him and nothing since. What's unusual is that today when we tell people that Jesus rose from the dead, very few people would respond with a sneer. Most let that one go through to the keeper, as if it was a wide ball. And it's not that they've thought about the possibility of resurrection and its implications and then rejected it. Rather, it is that they haven't thought about it at all. That they suppose that any story of resurrection 
must be just mythology and not real. Just as you and I don't believe in the god called Pegasus, well, it's not because we've never seen a flying horse. It's because we think the whole story is just that. It's, it's just a story. A story of adventure and majesty and wonder. But nonetheless, just a story. And that's the thing about the gospel these days. It's not rejected for lack of evidence. Indeed, the evidence for it is compelling. Rather, it's ignored as just one more narrative. One more story competing for our attention. And even though church attendance and belonging is waning in the cultural West, and so-called nuns or no religion is on the rise, we shouldn't think that atheism is gaining a resurgence. It's not. People aren't becoming less religious these days, but like the ancient pagans, they're becoming even more religious. And like Paul's experience in Athens, your average Australian is not in full-blown rejection, but almost in full-blown ignorance. So perhaps like Paul in Athens, we need to start where the people are. His point of contact was their own idols, their own poets, their own culture. And though their idols may look different to ours, in effect they amount to the same thing. That is, their God substitutes. They occupy, they occupy the place in our lives which God should occupy. Typically, modern idolatry is largely material. It includes a hankering after fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol, any number of drugs. Increasingly, for many people, what they can't live without, well, it's not God, it's their smartphones. If you're not sure about that, then leave it at home for the day and see how anxious it might make you feel. But idolatry doesn't have to be so obviously covetous. Anything that displaces God will do. It could be your parents, your spouse, your children and friends. It could be work or recreation, TV, possessions. It could be church, religion and Christian service. They can become idols. If they become God's substitutes for us. As John Calvin says, the heart of man is an idol factory. And it's true. Our ability to manufacture idols in our factories and our minds is almost limitless. So it is one measure of Christian maturity to be very aware of sinfulness and idolatry wherever we find it and be deeply troubled by it. When Jesus witnessed religious idolatry in Israel, he wept over impenitent Jerusalem. When Paul witnessed pagan idolatry in Athens, he too was deeply troubled. In both cases, the anguish of their heart was to call for repentance, a call to turn to the living God, the God who gives to everyone life and breath and everything else, the God who by one man, Jesus Christ, offers himself in love for the redemption of the world, and by that same man will judge the world in justice. Now that's a sober message, because every one of us, without exception, 
is without excuse. We're all guilty. The call to repentance, therefore, well, it's not a message of finger-pointing accusation. It's a desperate plea from the heart, a plea to turn and be saved before it's too late. Repent and believe, far from being intolerant and hateful, is rightly a word of love, a word that points to forgiveness at the cross and eternal life at the resurrection. And so the call to repent and believe the gospel, at least in part, is born out of a love for our neighbours and our friends. But mostly we declare the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus the Lord out of a love for God and a desire to magnify his goodness and his mercy, his greatness and his holiness. You see, both Jesus and Paul were troubled when they saw idolatry, partly because they were grieved to see others doing themselves no favours by worshipping the created rather than the creator. But mostly they were grieved because idolatry mocks and maligns a holy God. Because idolatry is a turning away from God in selfishness and ignorance and pride. So when Paul has the opportunity to address the Athenians, what's impressive about his message is not just its comprehensiveness, but also the depth and the power of his motivation. In verse 16, we're told that Paul's greatly distressed by what he sees. And in verse 22 and 23, we're again told what Paul sees and what he looks carefully at. And the word that Luke uses to say that Paul saw idols isn't simply about noticing them. Paul observes them and he considers them carefully. And the thought of such idolatry, well, it makes him indignant that God's glory is being profaned. For men and women created by God in the image of God are giving to idols the homage which is due to God alone. And it doesn't make him angry with the people, but it does fire his passion, a passion to proclaim the glory and majesty of a merciful and holy God. And I guess that begs the question, what is it that fires our passion? What do we talk about the most? What do we find more interesting and more important than anything else? What motivates us to proclaim the message of the gospel? Well, I'd want to think that, like Paul, we're motivated by divine jealousy, a burning desire to love God and to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvellous light. But the evidence for that is far from compelling. Too easily we can become deaf to the Great Commission and tongue-tied in our testimony. And it's not that we have nothing to say, for we speak easily of all manner of things that we find interesting and important. And we're not tongue-tied about what we know and what we love. Ask a mother about her children. Ask a patient about his injury. Ask any sports fan about their team, and you'll know that what I'm saying, well, it's true. 
And I reckon that's the thing that makes the difference between occasionally or rarely mentioning God and the Gospel to our friends and regularly making God and the Gospel the theme of our lives, the salt of our conversation, the source of our joy and the subject of our praise. You see, the truth is we worship what we love. And it's not that we don't love God, we do. We, we really, really do love God. It's why we're here today and every Sunday. And it's our love for God that not only brings us here to worship, but also sends us out to declare his mighty works. And if we're going to do that consistently and well, if we're going to do that with passion and with joy, then it's not enough that we should solely hope to be obedient to the command of Christ's Great Commission. You see, obedience for its own sake, well, it always ends up as either pride or guilt. And nor is it enough that compassion for the lost be our primary motivation. That always ends up as duty at best and fatigue at worst. For we can only ever begin to love our neighbour when first we love God. And we do love God because he first loved us. And we know that he loves us because he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. And the death that Jesus died for us is the sacrifice that bears the just wrath of God against us. His is the sacrifice that in turn offers to us not only the forgiveness of all our sins, but a relationship with the Father. A relationship that makes us sons and heirs to all the promises of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus our Lord. So not surprisingly, the God who loves us well, he calls us to love him with our whole being, with all our heart and our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And we do that best when we love the Son whom he has sent. For the Father loves the Son and he calls us to do likewise. For in the Son dwells bodily all the fullness of God. And in Jesus we find the beauty of God's holiness, the depths of God's love, the fullness of God's joy, and the fulfilment of all God's promises. And though we do not see God, we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. But now, well, he's crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so because of him, can we with all the hosts of heaven and with a cloud of many witnesses, can we draw near to the throne of our God and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And before the lion of the tribe of Judah, and before the Lamb of God, we say, you alone are worthy. And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And with you, we shall reign on the earth. 
For worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength. To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. That's our privilege now, one for us. And when we love God like that, then even though idolatry will greatly distress us, the gospel will become for us the delight of our souls, the joy of our hearts, the touchstone of our lives, and the testimony of our lips. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.